We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed wayne rooney orchestrated an iconic memorable and defining moment this weekend it was one for the ages and the kind of drama that you hope for when you sign a big name it was absolutely a magical moment it was not however the best goal in mls history hello sunshine i'm alexi lawless and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. As you heard, we'll be talking about Wayne Rooney's heroics. We'll have our Mossy Makes the Case segment. We'll be answering your questions in our Ask Alexi segment and so much more. But first, as always, joining me, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. How are you, Mr. Mossy? I am good. Uh, got back in the mix this past weekend with the German Super Cup, Frankfurt Bayern. It was great to see the likes of Kate Abdo and Ian Joy and Jovan Karofsky and Keith and Stu Holden again. Uh, so the gang is back together. It was good times. I can't wait. I, I'm scheduled to work at the uh, kickoff of the Bundesliga, so I will be back in Los Angeles for the first time in close to three months when we kick that off, and then i got to head right back out to do some more MLS. Uh, we'll talk more about MLS in this, uh, in this podcast, but I'm excited to get into this fall. I'm excited to get into all of this soccer that's coming. we got plenty of it on, uh, on our Fox channels, and you know the, 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 the soccer television rights is a huge, huge story. Everybody's buying up different things. Once again, if you are in the United States, you have the opportunity to see more soccer than a lot of people around the world. You're going to have to pay for it in some instances, but uh, this is definitely a soccer nation as uh, as is shown each and every time. All right, Mossy, enough talking. Uh, let's get to our main point for being here, right? The State of the Union. Ready to light this candle? Yep. All right. As you know, each and every week, we kick off the pod with Alexi Lawless's State of the Union. Yes, it's time for my State of the Union, where I look at a part of the game from an American perspective. And it goes something like this. Wayne Rooney orchestrated an iconic, memorable, and defining moment this weekend for him, for DC United, and for Major League Soccer. I was lucky enough to be calling the game in DC, and I screamed like a baby when Rooney tracked back in the 96th minute, executed a perfectly timed slide tackle to stop an empty net goal breakaway, won the ball, dribbled back upfield, and launched a Hail Mary pass back into the Orlando City box to teammate Luciano Acosta, who dutifully headed it home to finish off his hat trick and pull off what has to be said is an epic win, 3-2 for DC United. It was one for the ages and the kind of drama that you hope for when you sign a big name. And because it specifically involved Wayne Rooney, a recognized global superstar, it was immediately 
internationally relevant and the highlight was seen all over the world. It was absolutely a magical moment. It was not, however, the best goal in MLS history. And there are plenty of players in MLS that could have pulled off the same tackle and pass. But Wayne Rooney did it. And that's what makes it special, and that's why we care. Stars and names carry weight. Nobody is going to care in the world if, say, a John Wolinick had done what Rooney did. Oh, you don't know who John Wolinick is? Exactly. But go YouTube him and watch him score one of the greatest MLS goals of all time, and one that was a hundred times more difficult than what Rooney did. But we want our stars to star. We want them to be difference makers. And that's exactly what Wayne Rooney did and was on Sunday night. He played the star. He did exactly what is expected of him and what he's paid handsomely to do. Now the question is, can he do it again and again for DC United? And that is my State of the Union for this week. All right, Mossy, first uh, and foremost, did you see this miraculous play? And if you didn't, how is it possible that you live in 2018 in the United States and didn't see it? Yeah, of course I saw it. And you did a terrific job on the call. Keep in mind, Wayne Rooney uh, scored what's widely considered the greatest goal in Premier League history, that bicycle kick against Manchester City. And now he's the architect of what some are calling the best goal in MLS history, although I agree with you, it's not. Uh, you know, there used to be this thing where whenever movie stars would do television, they would invariably win Emmys because the television industry was so honored that a movie star would deign to do television. It's not like that anymore, but do you think there's there's something similar at play with MLS where if one of these big foreign stars does something, it does tend to get blown out of proportion sometimes? I don't know if it gets blown out of proportion, but I do think that it is given extra weight, and at times that weight is... It's not laughable because, as I said in the State of the Union, this is why you are hiring these, these players, to give you those magical moments, to give you those moments that keep you in games. What I thought was really interesting was the way that a lot of people that, let's be honest, it's probably the first time they're even seeing an MLS highlight this year, came to it. And that is the power. And that's, as I said before, that is the value of signing a big name player. The other thing was, that was interesting was this notion that this was something that only Wayne Rooney could do. And as I said in the State, State of the Union, tackling in the last minute, winning a ball, and then hitting a, a ball up into the box... Uh, is nothing new. We, it's, it happens at the, at the end of every single game. That Wayne Rooney did it, that's what makes it special for us. And you're absolutely right to bring up Wayne Rooney's bicycle kick. When you're talking about Wayne Rooney's bicycle kick, or you're talking about Zlatan Ibrahimovic's 50-yard bomb against LAFC, those are moments that only few players can do. Those are special moments in terms of what the talent it took to do that. But the talent it took for, to do what Wayne Rooney did is, is something that all players in Major League Soccer have. That he did it is why we are, are, are screaming yelling. The other thing is, there, there almost seems to be this, and, and my good friend George Karashi, who used to be with Howler and, and now is just a, a really, really smart writer and editor and just a really good person, I think he hit it perfectly when he said, it's a little puzzling the gratitude in which we want to uh, celebrate this almost as if uh, Wayne Rooney did something we've never seen before, in that him actually giving effort in the 96th minute is something to be celebrated, and, that, and, that, and this notion that Wayne Rooney has invented, pioneered, imported, and brought the concept of effort to an MLS uh, league of players that have never seen something like that before. That's what I think riles up 
uh, at least myself and, and others. And by the way, this no way diminishes how important this moment was for him and for this team, something that they, they needed. And this is, a, this is an iconic moment that will live long in what is already a pretty uh, robust history when it comes from DC United. But this is something this team needed. They're sitting in last place. But a as you mentioned, I do think we... We, we understandably, we put added value and added attention because specifically it is Wayne Rooney. And if some other player had done this, and if Luciano Acosta, who scored three goals on the night, if he had done it on the other side, it would have been a story within MLS, but it wouldn't have been a highlight that went around the, around the world if he had just lobbed it up to Darren Maddox or somebody up top. No. And that this is this is why you are buying these players. This is why you are bringing them in to create relevancy, not just for your fan base, but around the world. And in that moment, he definitely did that. Did you think that it required any special uh, talent or uh, heroic type of trait, uh, the likes of which you haven't seen before when you watch the play? No, no, I agree with you. Uh, that part of it's been definitely blown out of proportion. Now, you, you famously expressed skepticism about this signing on TMZ, no less. Uh, how do you think Rooney's done so far? I think he provided a moment, but that was only a moment. He is playing for a team that is, I think I called them the best bad team in MLS. And that is a backhanded compliment. But it is, I think, for, for at least for me, it adequately describes what this team is. Because there is talent. And they could go on a run here. And they're also in this situation where DC United has played on the road all year because of their new stadium and We've seen teams that, that do that and struggle. But I don't think that Wayne Rooney has had the impact, uh, the consistent impact. This is a great moment, and this is why I said, can he do it again and again and again and be integral in terms of this team competing week in and week out? I was really, uh, it was really interesting to watch him play, notwithstanding that last moment, but to watch him play and to see this, this situation that actually we've seen before where he gets frustrated and then he starts to pull back and try to get on the ball almost to the point where while he's starting up top, at times he's showing up almost at the back line or right in front of the back line and getting the ball. I, I got a feeling as they go forward, he's going to be less and less effective up top because he doesn't have the speed that he once had. Um, he's still a great soccer player and you can play in and out of uh, in, in and out to him. And Luciano Acosta has recognized that and is really the star of that team. I'll be interested to see if Ben Olsen starts to put him into a much more uh, midfield type of possession that puts him on the ball, ball more. Because when he's on the ball, he makes good decisions, but he's not going to run past anybody. As a matter of fact, there was times where he had a couple of steps the other day on defenders and elected to pull it back as opposed to go for the jugular, which is something that he would have done in the past. So I still am skeptical about how much Wayne Rooney can bring to this DC United team. But he brought them a moment, and that moment, as I said, is going to live long in the, in the memories of D.C. United supporters, and it's something that they, they have needed. I was in this new building, too. Uh, I think it's a, a really, it's, it's a wonderful thing. I mean, they had only, only, only could only go up because RFK, as you know, Masi, uh, while it served its purpose over the years, we can romanticize it all, all we want, but it's done, and thank God it's done, and they have this new building. It was, it was fun to see. You should check it out if you get a chance to go over there. I'd love to. Uh, last question for me on this. Be honest. Is there a small part of you that roots against the Wayne Rooney's because, you know, if they do well in MLS, it's going to trigger that annoying narrative of this shows you how weak MLS is, that guys past their prime can go over here and play well. Uh, so does that make you p part of you want to see these guys not do too well? Honestly, I would tell you if I if I wanted them to fail um, and I don't. 
and and look, well, there's there's you know, I, I am a human being like everybody else. But what 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 because I don't want them to fail. You know, the whole narrative about the the um, you know it's a, a retirement league and all that kind of stuff that, that honestly doesn't bother them anymore because I can I can provide so many examples where that's not true. And by the way, if you really want to look at what MLS has become in 2018 relative to the past, that is completely a false narrative to talk about it being a a, a retirement league. And so. Look, if Zlatan scores goals or Rain Rooney scores goals, that is a good thing. And there's going to be people regardless that are going to be critical of, of what's going on. But I can show you plenty of players out there that have come over and have taken it seriously. For me, the, the good part about having these players come is the message that they take and the message that they give back and that they take with them going forward that, hey, you know what? This is a very, very different type of environment to play in. And if you go in there thinking that you can just dance around, you're going you're, you're gonna to be embarrassed. And a lot of these big names, they don't want that brand hurt. So no, that's a long way of saying that, no, I don't root for them to, to fail so that it shows that this is not a retirement league. This is okay. I mean, both these players were playing a year ago in the EPL, and uh, nobody and nobody said anything. Yes, they said they're not what they used to be, obviously, but I don't think that Wayne Rooney doing well uh, or not doing well is going to be quite honest it, 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 at this point is going to change the league in any way other than make it better. But if he doesn't do well, you know, whatever, uh, he'll he'll go on. So I don't know. I I do not want people to do poorly just because it may bolster the internal and external view of what Major League Soccer is. All right, enough about Wayne Rooney. Until next time, and hopefully there is a next time because these are great things to talk about. Uh, moving on. Mossy makes the case. Yes, it's that time again. My good friend Mossy is about to make his case. Mossy makes the case. All right, David, what do you have for the people this week? All right, I'm still on the transfer market tip. My case this week is that goalkeepers have made the journey from being undervalued to being overvalued. Goalkeepers have been a big theme this summer, some big names of swap clubs. I talked about Gigi Buffon a couple of weeks ago, so I'll leave that alone, and we can discuss Courtois to Real Madrid in the chat afterwards, but I want to focus on the two mega transfers that took place. Alisson going from Roma to Liverpool for 62.5 million euros, which could rise to 70 million with bonuses. At the time, that was a record fee for a goalkeeper, but three weeks later, Chelsea paid 80 million euros for the young Spaniard Kepa from Athletic Bilbao. And those two moves have triggered this debate about the value of goalkeepers. And listen, I get the argument. Alisson is one of the top five goalkeepers in the world. He's in his prime. And if this was any other position, you're talking about getting one of the top five players in the world at that position in his prime, a starter for Brazil, nobody would bat an eye. And Kepa is this immense talent who looks poised to be one of the best goalkeepers in the world for many years. So so what's the problem here? Um, to me, I, I do have an issue with it. I, I view goalkeepers the same way I view field goal kickers. Uh, it's extremely important to have somebody reliable in that spot. You, do, you don't want a bad goalkeeper can kill you. Carrier showed that. I definitely think Liverpool needed to upgrade. But... To me, it's a position that if you scout properly, you ought to be able to fill without a crazy expenditure. I can't believe Jurgen Klopp, with his eye for talent, couldn't have found the goalkeeper somewhere that would have been solid and competent enough without having to spend 70 million euros. I fundamentally don't think there's that big a difference between having the 20th best goalkeeper in the world and having the fifth best, as much as there is in, a, in another position like center fold, where I think there is a bigger gap between having the 20th best and the fifth. And I don't know if analytics back me up on that, but... 
I mean, who cares about analytics? What do I look like, a researcher? Um, but uh, I mean, that, that's my, my position on that. So I don't know how you feel, Alexi. I mean, we know transfer fees have, have been inflated and goalkeepers are getting swept up in that. Do you, do you look and say, oh my God, 70, 80 million euros for a goalkeeper? Or do you feel like that's fine? A goalkeeper is just like any other position. There's nothing wrong with that. Well, first and foremost, I look at goalkeepers as a necessary evil. And you can't live with them and you can't throw them off the deck. Um, when, when, when I think about goalkeepers, first off, keep in mind that you're talking about the high-end type of goalkeeper that is also going to the elite type of club. And any goalkeeper will tell you that there's a big difference between, you know, people talk about Tim Howard uh, against Belgium, which was a, a wonderful performance in the 2014 World Cup. But I think Tim Howard, if you talk to him and many goalkeepers that we talk to will say, you know what? I would, I would rather as a goalkeeper be getting many shots than just that one or two shot. And the reality is that when you're playing for some of these elite teams, that's really what you're paying for. You're paying for that one save that is going to keep you in a game. You're paying for that one save that is going to get you to a Champions League final. You're paying for that one save that is going to save that Champions League final for you. And I think that there is real value into that. So a player that a goalkeeper that saves a lot of uh, shots that's all fine and well but a goalkeeper that can save that one there is tremendous value to the elite teams in the world i you know i look at for example david de gea which i think still despite you know the, the this summer still would be up there in the top 5 goalkeepers in the world think of what our, our the narrative would be in terms of how we look at both manchester united and how we look at jose mourinho if David De Gea were not in goal, this is a guy that, you know, you talk about analytics or you just talk about, uh, uh, you know, the, the economics of it. This is a guy that has been worth every single dollar. And you, you mentioned that, you know, one to 20 or whatever, there's no, it's negligible or there's not that much difference. I would beg to differ when it comes to some of these elite goalkeepers. I, I would, if you had had, I don't know, pick another goalkeeper out there, Kaylor Navas. Okay, which we'll talk about in a second. But if you if you had Kaylor Navas in goal for Manchester United uh, over the last couple of years, uh, I think it would be a very very different way that we are looking at this team and looking at uh, and looking at Jose Mourinho. And that's not disparaging Kaylor Navas, to be quite honest, because sometimes it's situational, which gets back to the Kaylor Navas situation where year after year, I think there was this sentiment both internally and externally where everyone looked around and said. I don't think he's a good goalkeeper, and yet he still makes saves, and this team keeps winning. And there was just always this nagging feeling, I think, especially internally, that we can do better. You know, be careful, though. Uh, they, they, they may have moved on thinking that they can do better. And in soccer, as, as in love, sometimes the grass is, is not greener. And so you start taking pieces out of a machine that is that is functioning for whatever reason. And sometimes it's, it's difficult even to understand why it's functioning, but it's functioning and things start to fall apart. But in general right now, it's not a surprise to me that goalkeepers' values continue to, uh, to get higher. I don't think that no, they are not as valuable as the people that put the ball in the back of the net. There is nothing more valuable in our game than putting the ball in the back of the net. And that's why the people that do it are valued as high as they are. But having a good goalkeeper from a save perspective and also from a leadership perspective and a confidence perspective, I think that if, if, 
If it costs a little bit more money or a lot more money, I think it is money well spent. I don't think that you're throwing it away. And I know that this is this has been and I my my view has kind of changed over the years because I was in that mode of goalkeepers are goalkeepers and between one and 20, whatever, they're going to make the same saves ultimately. And so why pay so much more when you're only going to get a couple more saves? Well, if you're an elite team, maybe those couple saves are the ones that bring you to that promised land. And that's why you do spend it. Well, let me address the Courtois thing since you, you kind of led us in that direction. So uh, Real Madrid got him for 35 million euros, and they're pointing to the Alisson and Kepa feeds as evidence that this was too good a deal to pass up. This was some incredible bargain. So we're now to the point, by the way, where 35 million euros for a, a goalkeeper is considered a bargain, uh, which uh, keep in mind, Real Madrid paid 10 million euros for Kaylor Navas, and Barcelona paid 12 million euros for Ter Stegen. But okay, fair enough. In the current market, I'll even buy it at 35 million for Courtois as a bargain. He's 26. Navas is 31. If you're ranking the best goalkeepers in the world, I would probably put Courtois above Navas. I know Ray Hudson would disagree. So in a vacuum, you can sell me on this move. But as you mentioned, it's just off-putting to me that Florentino Perez has been obsessed for the last three or four years with signing a goalkeeper, even as he's kept winning Champions League titles with Navas. He just fundamentally doesn't buy into Kaylor Navas. And, and I find the whole thing, frankly, bizarre. And the, these like rationalizations on the part of the Madrid media that it's not awkward to have both these guys on the team, that it's competition and it's depth and what's wrong with that. Both these guys, to me, have reached a level in their careers where they should not be competing in training every day to find out whether they're going to play that weekend. And to me, what they're going to end up doing here is that goofy rotation where uh, Courtois is going to play the league games and Navas is going to play the Champions League or something like that. It's what they did a few years back with Diego Lopez and Casillas and what Barcelona did with Bravo and Ter Stegen. And that's going to have to be the solution here because to me, it would be incredibly awkward to leave either one of these guys, in the, to just pick one and leave the other guy sitting on the bench. Uh, it's just amazing to me. And we're going to talk about Real Madrid, I know, in the Ask Alexi segment. But it's amazing to me in a summer where they got rid of Cristiano Ronaldo and haven't really replaced him. And Lopetegui is asking for players at other positions and not getting them, that the one thing that Florentino Pettis felt like he had to do this summer was to sign a goalkeeper. You have a guy who's 31 years old, which is not that old for a goalkeeper, under contract for a couple more years, and he just won you three straight Champions League titles. But this was the one thing they had to get done this summer. They couldn't pass up the chance to get Courtois. So, I mean, to me, I, I find the whole thing off-putting. I do feel like Navas has been disrespected there. Uh, I, I agree with you, um, but it gives us something to talk about, which is wonderful. But I will say from, from an experience perspective, it never works when you have two number ones fighting it out. I know that co coaches will constantly talk about competition, and competition is good. I think at times it can be disconcerting for the players involved, and even more so for the players around you. As 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 a defender, and as somebody in a in a back four or a back three, or just in a in a team, I wanted to know who the number one was because reps matter and having an understanding of both the good and the bad that comes with every goalkeeper is key and if you're constantly going back and forth you're constantly have to have to adjust to a goalkeeper and that's not something that you that you want to do so I I, I think it is strange is it because and we get this sometimes with different players that don't they just don't fit the mold of 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 a goalkeeper in the way that they look in the way that they move maybe in this case in terms of his nationality whatever it ends up being you know in the same way that Iguain sometimes we say yeah, but is he really that good? And, and it's a little easier to, to assess him because he puts the ball in the back of the net. But he doesn't, he's not really fast. He's not really strong. He's not that tall. He looks kind of dumpy. He was running around. Kaylor Navas is, is the same way in that you look at him and 
you know, and this is just preconceived notions and biases that are inherently built into us as human beings. You just don't get that feeling of confidence. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a part of it. It's not, he's not a sexy <laughs> uh, name or to have back there. Uh, yeah, Florentino Perez, he, he, he wants, you know, it's funny. We're going to talk about, like I said, Rambert later. And he, he's, he's moved off this whole obsession with Galacticos and big name signings. But for some reason, the goalkeeper position, it still bothered him to not have a, a quote unquote big star there. So first it was De Gea and now it's Courtois. And, and he really definitely feels the need to get somebody that's more sexy than Kaylor Navas. So now he's finally got it. So we'll see how it goes. All right, another successful Mossy Makes the Case segment. I like that one. Moving on. Ask Alexi. All right, it's time for our Ask Alexi segment, that segment where we take your questions, comments, concerns, and some of them, uh, if you're lucky, are going to be read by my good friend David Mossy. Remember, if you're using the Ask Alexi hashtag, send us those questions on Twitter, on Facebook, all the different social media platforms, and like I said, Mossy might read it. All right, Mossy, what do the people want to know this week? All right, first up, at Tanner Morrill 99 Who's your U.S. men's national team starting 11 as of today? Oh, jeez. All right, well, first off, a, a couple of things in general when we're talking about uh, the men's national team here. I firmly believe that this is a seminal moment and, a, and an opportunity for change. So much so that there is an element of me an uh, element that I believe we need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, so let's call it my my bathwater theory, okay? Uh, there are a few players and a very few players that, for me, will continue on from the previous team, and especially the team that uh, was responsible for the failure of not making the 2014 World Cup. Those players would be, and in no particular order, uh, Christian Pulisic, DeAndre Yedlin, Brooks, probably, and and maybe even a Brad Guzan, uh, not as a starter, but as someone you know more of a of a leader uh, and somebody certainly from a goalkeeping position that can help out. Uh, who would be my starter going forward? I want a lot of these players and almost as many of them as possible to be available and to be well. I don't know if they're available, but at least to be eligible for the Olympic team coming forward. And so when you're talking about that, you know, players like, obviously, Josh Sargent, players like, let's see, Tyler Adams, players like Timothy Weah, players like Weston McKinney, all of those players I want in my starting lineup. Uh, let's see, who else? I'm trying to think if there's other players out. Bobby Wood's an interesting one. I didn't, I didn't mention him as a holdover, but I can be convinced uh, on a Bobby Wood continuing on. I don't know if that's 11 or not, but my, my point is, that whether it's an 11 or not, I really hope that the U.S. Soccer Federation under Ernie Stewart's leadership right now and whoever the coach is focuses on being able to have the core of the 2022 World Cup team come from the campaign of the 2020 Olympic team uh, and really, really put a lot of emphasis on qualifying number one and then doing well in the Olympics. And then that whole core and that leadership group uh, that has ownership now of a national team, albeit in an Olympic form, then transfers to the national team and brings some players that that uh, weren't eligible because of age, because they know that's a, that's an under 23 tournament, except for three uh, overage players. So that, that in a nutshell is what I would do. And so I know oh, I threw out a bunch of names there uh, and there'll be more, there'll be players that we're not talking about yet. That will uh, that will step up and and uh, turn our heads that uh, might make it in there. Brazil, incidentally, on uh, Friday will name their squad for the friendly against the U.S. Uh, 
first list of a new cycle is always a little funky. I don't think too many of the World Cup guys will be on there. It'll be a lot of domestic-based players, but uh, I'm sure I'll have thoughts on Twitter and, and uh, next week on the pod. Next up, at Kurt Allen 963 How do you feel about Kroenke taking 100% ownership of Arsenal? Any thoughts? I think it's smart business. I know that there is incredible consternation because of both the perception and probably the reality that Kroenke is a very different type of owner in terms of the way that he has looked at Arsenal and the way that he has utilized Arsenal um, or underutilized Arsenal from a competitive standpoint. But this should be no surprise because of the incredible value that that brand has globally. So uh, for Kroenke, who is a very shrewd business person, that he recognized an opportunity to take over um, and to take it all over. I mean, that's that's just smart. I was It was interesting to hear the comments and almost the resignation and, to be quite honest, almost a sadness of the minority ownership conceding that all was lost and that this was finally being done. Now, does that mean that Arsenal is doomed never to return to the heights that they once were. Uh, and is it doomed? And is it specifically because of Kroenke? Uh, I don't think so. Arsenal's still going to spend plenty of money. But Arsenal right now is a, a mediocre team, albeit an elite brand. And that, even, even over after the first week, is the perception and the reality of that. Uh, very little has changed uh, for that. So I don't think that this is necessarily a bad thing. I don't think it's a bad thing because this is an American or foreign ownership. If it's a bad thing, it's because this team, from a leadership standpoint, has yet to do the things that that have gotten them back to that elite status. And that's what everybody wants. That's what Arsenal fans want. And to be quite honest, that's what many people that have followed Arsenal are at times hoping and at times I'm sure laughing about because they have yet to go back to that uh, to that high level. I don't think it's that big a deal, uh, the Kroenke the full ownership, but I, but I don't think that you should expect a massive change one way or the other in terms of, oh my goodness, Kroenke's now spending ridiculous amounts of money and really trying to take this team back to the top, or he's not doing that and we're going to get even worse. I think it's going to be, at least for a while, just a steady course with minimal gains and I think minimal losses if there are any. What about you, Ossie? What do you think? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I t- frankly, I've kind of thought of him as the owner anyway. <laughs> so uh, so uh, to me, th- this doesn't change things. In my, to me, he's, he's been the guy in charge. So, yeah, it's, it's a good business move on his part for sure. Uh, we'll end on this at Aro Raji 14 Hope I'm pronouncing that right. What do you think of the current Real Madrid team? What do you think? How far can they go this season? Uh, we're taping this Tuesday, August 14th. Real Madrid, their first competitive match of the season is tomorrow. The UEFA Super Cup against Atletico Madrid in Estonia. No Cristiano Ronaldo. He left for Juventus. No Zinedine Zidane. He left as well. They hired uh, Lopetegui. A uh, hiring that I think perhaps could have been handled a little better. The timing left something to be desired. But a lot of intrigue surrounding Real Madrid this first post-Ronaldo season. I have lots of thoughts, but I'll let you go first. What do you think? Well, we talked a little bit about the goalkeeping situation. I think it's going to be very, very interesting to see not just how Real Madrid looks, but how Real Madrid looks relative to both Barcelona, because that's always a compare and contrast, and how how La Liga looks without uh, a Ronaldo. I mean, this is a league that has churned and burned big-time players and has made a living off of doing that when it comes to the, the, the big two up top. Now, I think Luka Modric is still worth the price of admission, albeit at, albeit at the end of the curve there. 
uh, this is still a team with with wonderful talent. When you look at the likes of uh, you know of Isco and your, your your guy Casemiro running around there, and obviously Tony Cruz and 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 you know still with Gareth Bale. And is does this become more of a Gareth Bale team in the absence of Ronaldo? I think all of that kind of stuff is fine. I think they're going to be fine. I think they are going to still compete, but I don't think that they are going to put the fear of God in as many teams as they have in the past. And therefore, I think it's going to be really, really important to kind of spread the wealth throughout this team. And, you know, that goalkeeping situation has to be resolved at a certain point. And some of these players that we've talked to, uh, talked about, especially the younger players that have come up, now this is their Real Madrid team. And it's their responsibility to take it and make it something special. Um, it's not just going to play for itself, and it's not just going to be play just because you're called Real Madrid. So I'm excited to see Real Madrid. Yeah, it's interesting to me that Courtois side, they've kind of sat out this summer. Uh, the fans mm-hmm. and media think they need a center forward because Benzema's numbers have gone down the last couple of years. He had only 12 goals last season. The justification for keeping him in the lineup was that he played well off of Ronaldo. And when you have Ronaldo, you don't need a prolific center forward. You're going to have more of a playmaking type. Well, now you don't have Ronaldo there. you got to make up those goals. So can you afford to have a center forward that only scores 12 goals a season? But Florentino Perez loves Benzema, so he uh, doesn't look like he's going to make a move. So, yeah, they're going to need Benzema to pick it up with the scoring. They're going to need Gareth Bale to stay healthy. And they're going to need Asensio to take a big leap, which I think could happen. Uh, he's going to start as part of that front three tomorrow, I suspect. And keep in mind, the Spaniards are feeling very reinforced there by having Lopetegui. Guys like Asensio and Isco and even Danny Ceballos, who at times were frustrated at their lack of playing time under Zidane. I'll feel like with Lopetegui now, uh, they're in good hands there. And another interesting Real Madrid thing, they have this 18-year-old Brazilian kid, Vinicius Jr., who they paid 45 million euros for when he was 16 before he'd even played a professional game. And he's there now. And then they turned around and paid 45 million euros for another Brazilian teenager, Rodrigo, who's still only 17. He's going to go over next season. And a lot of people were shocked by that. And their explanation was, we think these guys a few years from now are going to be worth 200 million. And so the thing to do in this inflated market is to try to anticipate who the next stars are going to be and try to get them early. And, and they think that 45 million is going to look like a bargain in a few years. We'll see. I like Vinicius Jr., but I think that one could go either way. The second kid I mentioned, Rodrigo, I love. I think is a can't-miss superstar. Mbappe-like talent. So I think that one is going to look very smart in a few years. But it's, it's an interesting approach Real Madrid have taken here in this, in this new crazy world of the transfer market. So it's going to be fun to see if it uh, pans out for them. Oh, okay. So now I'm supposed to look at Real Madrid as a developmental team uh, and as a team, a team for the future. All right. You, you sold me on the Galacticos and uh, the big names for year after year after year. And now I'm supposed to be patient and wait for these players to come to fruition and then they'll be worth a whole lot of money. All right. That's that's cool. I guess, you know, when when we zig, they zag. That's uh, They're trying to stay ahead of the game or behind the game or, or somewhere around the game differently than in the past. But either way, it's going to be fun to watch them. All right. That has been our Ask Alexi segment. As always, make sure you use that Ask Alexi hashtag and send us all your uh, tweets and comments and uh, emails and anything that you could possibly get to us. And uh, as we said before, maybe Mossy will read them on a future episode of the State of the Union podcast. All right, moving on. The back three. Okay, we're coming down to the end of things here. Uh, Our back three is upon us. Some of the biggest stories or games or moments out there. Mossy, uh, what are we talking about here on our back three? 
All right, let's start with the Premier League opening weekend. Uh, I think the overriding question in England is, can anybody challenge Manchester City? And most people feel like if anybody is going to challenge them, it's going to be Liverpool. They had a fantastic uh, performance, 4-0 win over West Ham. I know you were very high on Liverpool coming into the season. I'm sure that performance did nothing to dissuade you. They look like a juggernaut. They did, with the only caveat being these are not the types of games that we necessarily are going to get anything out of judging Liverpool. They could have played half of that team and still won. That's how good they are, and that's how deep they are. The Keita signing, I think, is inspired. I think he's really going to be something special. And once again, that was against inferior competition, which oftentimes we're going to see them play against inferior competition, but they they steamrolled, and they are fun. And we talked, uh, what was it, last week or two weeks ago, about the additional pressure coming from the outside and you know pressure coming from the inside when you spend money and when you've done what you've done in the previous season on Liverpool. At least initially here, uh, they're looking like the real thing. They're looking like they are going to challenge Man City, uh, and it's going to be between them up at top. But we know that this this is a league that can take all sorts of interesting twists and turns. But it's fun to see a Liverpool team, at least initially, saying, yeah, we know there's pressure. We know there's attention. We know we spent money. We know we, what we did last year, and we want to do better. They were, they were fun to watch uh, over the weekend, but there's going to be much stiffer competition coming. And that's really where we're going to judge uh, Klopp and, uh, and company uh, going forward. Uh, I agree with you. I think Nabi Keita is going to be the signing of the of the season in England. Now, uh, Sadio Mane is Keith Costigan's pick for PFA Player of the Year this year. There's my obligatory Keith Costigan mention. He got two goals over the weekend, but one of them blatantly offside. Is the Premier League just going to look ridiculous here with this no VAR thing? No, they already look ridiculous. <laughs> and you know, I look they they they're standing on principle, and they they want to wait and see. And anytime that they make a comment, it's like yes, but we well, we might. Put it in, and when we do, we're going to tweak it, and we're going to have the benefit of having seen what's gone well and what hasn't gone well. And I, I get that to a certain extent, but come on. And and it was interesting watching the Premier League this weekend. For those of us that uh, watch, whether it's Bundesliga or Serie A or uh, Eredivisie or uh, obviously Major League Soccer or any other league that has had and continues to have VAR. Uh, it's very strange because your mind clicks immediately to, oh, that's going to be reviewed, or there's, uh, that's, VAR should come into play here. And when it doesn't, and especially when it doesn't in a moment where it's so obvious, it just becomes even more so, that more dramatically emphasized on how antiquated, uh, I, think I, I think I said it on Twitter, it, it, it's, it's like, it's quaint for a little bit and then it just looks completely antiquated because the whole point was to get these calls right and I know there's plenty of challenges out there and it's not without criticism but as you mentioned Sadio Mane scored a goal that was illegal that violated the laws of the game in a completely clear and obvious manner that would have been dealt with in a matter of seconds had VAR been in existence but it wasn't and so what do you want do you want that goal to stand uh, which is, by all accounts, I think anybody reasonable or sane can look at it and say, that is an illegal goal. Do you want that to stand? Or do you want to do the things that are going to say, no, we have the technology, we have evolved to a point where we can actually fix that and not have it stand? And that's what everybody around the world that has implemented VR has and holds as an ideal. Don't always live up to it, but it's certainly a whole lot better than the alternative of uh, of the past. And I think the EPL just looks sillier and sillier by not having it. Yeah, you know, they made that decision before the World Cup when VAR was still kind of polarizing, but they look really bad now because it was such a success at the World Cup that everybody's kind of 
gotten on board. And yeah, listen, I have issues with it. I think they check too many things in the subjective stuff. But the the blatant mistakes, I mean, to have somebody up there that can buzz down the referee and tell them, look, Mane was offside there. Why wouldn't you want that? And, you know, nobody cared this weekend because Liverpool were going to win anyway. But imagine if the title was decided on a goal like that in the last round and everybody oh. else is using it and it's in the World Cup and... Uh, so, yeah, I mean, they're going to look bad there. But Manchester City, on the heels of Liverpool, uh, they look great as well. David Silva didn't even play. De Bruyne didn't come on until the second half. But they brush aside Arsenal at the Emirates. So uh, they are locked and loaded again, uh, looking very strong. Oh, my goodness. Uh, you know, Pep just kind of walked in there with a with a cigarette and a coffee and kind of just uh, looked around and said, I'm, I don't know who I'll play, but I'll throw some people out there and we'll still win. And it says as much about... Man City, uh, as it does say about Arsenal. And, and once again, we were talking earlier about Arsenal. This is not a game that Arsenal is supposed to win. And that in itself is a, a damning statement for what Arsenal has once been. But we're not going to judge Arsenal by playing Man City. And so it should not be a surprise, given what, what Arsenal has been, that Man City, the champions of the league, and a team that has just gotten stronger and it looks to be not missing a beat going into this next league, were to come in and take three points without a, without a problem. So I don't think that that we are going to be talking about Arsenal and Man City in the same sentence in terms of where they're competing. And this brings up the other thing, is that so many times when we're talking about the EPL, we're talking about where they are realistically in terms of the games that they're supposed to win. And, I, and look, this isn't me on my uh, soapbox about Major League Soccer. I'm just pointing out the difference at times in the arguments when we are watching games. So many times in the EPL, it's, well, this is where they are supposed to finish relative to the quality that they have, the depth that they have, and certainly the recent history that they have. And so when they play these games, we're often looking at them going, yeah, but they're not supposed to get points here. Or, whoa, yeah, they, they dropped here because that's a team that they should win because they're relative in terms of their spending and in terms of their, in terms of their quality. And we do that constantly. And whether it's lower-level teams, mid-level teams, or the elite at the top, we continue to do that. We don't do that when it comes to Major League Soccer teams. And I think that's what makes Major League Soccer unique. And I wish that existed more when it came to not just the EPL, but a lot of leagues around. And this gets into a debate a debate and an argument and a reality uh, that exists in many of these leagues where you're, they're so top loaded or they're so heavy at the top in terms of whether it's one, whether it's two, at least in the EPL, it's let's say three or four that are that are fighting, and then there's everybody else in the mid, and then there's the ones that are scraping for uh, for relegation. But I, we're going to continue. It doesn't mean I'm not going to watch because I love watching it. And it's one of the most entertaining, and I would argue the most entertaining league in the world. But there are games where you know who's going to win, and the players understand who is who is there to win, and that's how we're viewing those games. Yeah, the only thing I'll say about Arsenal is uh, if they're going to play out of the back this season under Unai Emery, this goes back to our goalkeeper discussion. I'm not sure you can have Peter Cech back there. He's so bad with his feet. I mean, did you see that play where he almost passed the ball into his own net? I mean, uh, I almost felt sorry for him. What but, was what was funny was uh, also seeing uh, seeing him in the post game interview. He just he just seemed. You know, it go, maybe it goes back to the fact that I'm not sure he or his team thought that they were supposed to win it anyway. So it was all just kind of gravy, whatever happened. Uh, you know, he was just smiling through and having a good time. And, you know, I, look, I, I, I don't want to force people to act a certain way. But uh, he actually laughed about it. And it was kind of funny to hear him talk about that moment where he recognized that eh, things happen. I got a lot of things going through my head and I look down and this and that. So, <laughs> but, but if they are going to play out of the back and in this day and age, Teams play out of the back. It is, whether right or wrong, it is an indication of your intent. We associate it with 
good soccer and we associate it with skilled players, the ability uh, to play out of the back. And it's become this calling card of teams that if you are playing evolved and uh, mature soccer, then you are playing out of the back. And if you're doing that, then you better have a goalkeeper that is confident uh, and capable when that ball gets to his or her feet. All right. Well, uh, next topic, staying with the Premier League. The season actually began with Manchester United beating Leicester City 2-1. Pogba scored from the penalty spot and had a great all-around game. But he's made some comments afterwards that kind of intimated that he's not happy there, which everybody had been speculating all summer. There had been talk about him going back to Juventus or going to Barcelona. And, you know, when he was asked about it, he said, you know, there are things I cannot say, otherwise I will get fined. So clearly all is not right with him and Mourinho. How do you see that situation playing out? Do you think they can coexist for too much longer? And if not, who goes? Does Pogba have enough juice to get Mourinho fired? Or if it got bad enough, would they sell Pogba? And so how do you see that whole situation? I love this because... Pogba has come back in with this incredible trump card, if you will, or this, this, this cachet and this credibility of the World Cup, where not only did he win the World Cup, but he starred in the World Cup in a way that was transformative, in the way that he played, uh, in his leadership, in the way that he carried himself. It was so anti what we're used to associating him with Manchester United that the onus fell on, uh, it almost was reverted back to uh, Jose Mourinho saying, well, why can't you get him to play like that? And Jose actually did a really good job of, of turning it around and spinning it and about being happy. And I hope he understands why he's playing well. And almost as if, well, this was my plan all along, which we know is, which we know is not true. As far as the rift between them, whether it's, whether it's real or not, I don't think that they, um, I don't think they hate each other. But I don't think that they uh, spend a lot of time together, and I don't think that they see eye to eye in how the game is to be played and how they want to play the game, or how, in Jose Mourinho's case, how he wants Pogba uh, to play the game. I think, ultimately, the power before the summer was with Jose Mourinho. I think after the summer, I think the power is with Pogba right now, and... So something's going to have to give uh, going forward. But Mourinho, we know, has started off already in a uh, a legendary grumpy levels uh, of, uh, of of grumpiness, and uh, it's fun to see. But it it gets old really, really quick, and more importantly, it gets old for the players really, really quick. Well, let me ask you about that. Mourinho complains about the lack of signings. Does he need to look in the mirror and realize that the way he acts isn't helping? I mean, if you're a, a big star and Manchester United are trying to lure you there and the players making a list of sort of pros and cons of going to Man United, is playing for Mourinho now definitely a con? Or do you think it depends on the player, I guess? I mean, how do you, how do you view that? Oh, how dare you, Mossy? How <laughs> dare you malign one of the legends of the game? But you know what? Thinking about it, you're absolutely right. I think it is, it is flipped where there was a, uh, an incredible uh, allure to playing for Jose Mourinho and a, and a level of respect that, that came with not just winning, but the personality, the bravado, the ego, um, the beautiful arrogance. I think that that has gotten old in this context of being the, the coach of Manchester United. People now associate the play and the style of Manchester United with one of pragmatism with one that in no way shape or form lives up to the entertainment and the excitement and the allure of past teams and yet this is a team that obviously finished second in the league but i think that there it, it i think whether you're an agent or whether more importantly you're a player right now you are thinking twice now 
before saying yes to United. And I know ultimately money speaks much louder than a lot of that. But if you're a player that, you know, all things are equal or all things are roundabout equal, and you have to go and play for Jose Mourinho, given his reputation, and more importantly, given his recent reputation, I think it's going to give you... uh, uh, give you pause right now going forward. And that's not something that we have said in the past. Even when Mourinho was a pain in the neck and, and did his thing, there was always a, a level of respect and understanding that, okay, yeah, he's he can be a, a pain, but you know what? You're going to learn something uh, and he's going to get the best out of you. I think that there's been a real damage to his credibility. And he's going to fall back on saying, yes, we're we're winning, and I'm still finishing, finishing second. I'm still being competitive. And as you said, he's going to complain about not enough players, but that's what all coaches do, or not enough good players. Uh, I mentioned Barcelona link with Pogba. Uh, that segues into our last topic. La Liga and Serie A get in their way uh, this weekend. Let's start with Barcelona. I've said this before. I'll say it again. I do think this current Barcelona regime, they sign too many players. They can't help themselves. They make signings that step on each other. And they create a situation there that's potentially problematic. A lot of guys that are going to want to play and can you keep them all happy. But I will say, on paper, this squad looks ridiculous now. Adding Arturo Vidal to that midfield. Coutinho for a full season with Busquets and Rakitic. Even the Brazilian kid Arturo I love. You've got Messi and Suarez up there. Dembele scored a great goal over the weekend. He might uh, be poised for, for a bounce back season. You've got Malcolm Langlet a- added to that center back mix with uh, Piquet and Umtiti. Uh, a lot of people touting this Barcelona team as champion. Champions League favorites, and that is their big priority this season. But as far as La Liga, uh, with Ronaldo leaving Real Madrid, do you think Barcelona overwhelming favorites to, to retain that trophy? Yeah, I would say Barcelona favorites to retain that trophy. And I would I would echo uh, whoever it was, um, and I know there's many people, that they would be my favorites to win uh, Champions League. Yeah, I would say in La Liga, actually, their bigger challenge might come from Atletico Madrid. Uh, I love uh, the summer they had. They held on to Griezmann. They signed Thomas Lamar, Gelson Martins. They have Diego Costa and Vitolo for a full season. Uh, they signed Hodri to replace uh, Gabi in that midfield, held on to Godin, Oblak. So I think Simeone's got a, a fantastic squad there at his disposal, and they might be the team to challenge Barcelona more than Real Madrid domestically. And then we'll end on Serie A, which also starts this weekend, a league you played in when it was the best in the world. It's fallen on hard times. I would argue it was already in kind of an uptick the last couple of years, some new owners, more money being spent, new stadiums being built. You saw what Roma did in the Champions League last season, and now you drop Cristiano Ronaldo in there. So uh, do you feel like Serie A has a lot of juice again and is sort of creeping up on the Premier League and La Liga in terms of quality and interest? And you feel like Serie A's back? I am, I am cautiously optimistic, and I am certainly excited about the consistent, I mean, not ridiculously quickly uh, gr- uh, growth, but consistent growth year after year after year after what you mentioned has been, um, you know, a demise of their own making. And if there ever was a case study in how to kill the golden goose, it is Serie A over the last, you know, uh, 20 years, let's say. Uh, and I know that, you know, the, the Bosman ruling and the opening of the European community had an effect, but then obviously the, the corruption uh, and the mismanagement and the antiquated uh, way in which they serviced uh, the, the game and ultimately the fans and the customers, all of that, all of that is problematic. And they look to have come out of the other side. This is a big signing. Uh, of course, it's still a signing for what was already the best team and consistently the best team uh, for a number of years. And so the rich only get richer. I don't expect this to change anything when it comes to the uh, the Scudetto, when, when it comes to Serie A championship. I still look to uh, Juventus. But that league, you know, keep in mind, the way that we looked at La Liga was also 
at times through the filter of Real Madrid and Barcelona and then through the filter of Messi and Ronaldo. Well, now that Ronaldo equation is gone. So how much of that power now translates to Serie A? I think a lot of it does. I think there will be an interest in Juventus in particular because of it, but also that's going to trickle down to each and every week seeing him play in Serie A. And so I, I'm, I am interested to see uh, this Juventus team with Ronaldo, but I'm interested in to see how it might bolster the Serie A view from around the world going forward. Yeah, Juve clearly the favorites there, and I think one of the top favorites for the Champions League. But don't be surprised if Inter emerges their toughest challenges. I know Napoli held on to most of their guys, and they brought in Ancelotti to replace Sadi, and Rome have had a good summer as well. My man Monchi making moves. But I love what Inter did to bring in guys like Nainggolan and Keita Balde and this young Argentinian striker, Lautaro Martinez, who I love. I think it's going to be a big star there, and Stefan de Vrij at the back, So and Spalletti's a good coach. So Inter, I think, are on their way back here, and would not shock me if they emerged merged as Juve's toughest challenges. But of course, I see Juve winning Serie A again. You do. You see Juve winning Serie A and, and challenging for Champions League. And we talked about goalkeepers early on uh, with, with Chesney and goal. Yes. Uh, let me ask you this. This has been an interesting topic. Manchester City, Barcelona, Bayern Munich, uh, PSG and Juventus won the top five European leagues last season. If I told you that one of those teams is not going to win their league this season, you had to bet your life on which one it's going to be. Which one would you bet on? All right, so it's not it's not Bayern Munich, right. uh, it's not PSG, it's not Juventus. Uh, so it's either Man City or Barcelona, and I would say I think that there is more competition in the EPL in terms of the elite teams than there is in La Liga. So I will go with Man City. There you go. What would you go with? I agree. I agree. You agree. Yeah. You agree. All right. Well, we agreed on something. That's a good. That's a good thing. <laughs> All right, anything else or is that it? That is it. Uh, time for your closing remarks. Uh, you have a tough act to follow this week, my friend. Oh, my goodness. Last week, and I just extolled the virtues of my good friend David Mossy. That will not be happening this week. So here we go. We're, this is how we end each and every podcast with my one big thing. Uh, just a, just a, a sidebar here uh, as it relates to the State of the Union with Wayne Rooney. Uh, if you got a chance to see his post-game interview... It was about, you know, after the, this magic moment and his, uh, his confusion as to how and why uh, the goalkeeper, Osted from DC United, had come up into the box at the end. That for me was, was funny. The reason why, Wayne, <laughs> that your goalkeeper was up there in a 2-2 game is because you're in last place and you need three points, Okay. And that's the, the league that you are in, and that's the team that you're playing for. Now, that's just an aside, but I, was, I thought it was interesting to see just his complete confusion as to why Ben Olsen would send his goalkeeper up at the end uh, when everybody else knew it's, look, you, you got to find a way to win three points. And guess what? The next game, Wayne, you're going to have to find a way to win three points and, and going on and going on and going on because you guys need points right now. That's an aside. Uh, my, my big thing from today, though, is this. I spent uh, a couple of hours uh, over the weekend talking to both uh, folks from the Chicago Fire and folks from DC United. And I did my halftime uh, little uh, rip this week for MLS about the supporters culture. And we've talked about this in the past on the uh, podcast. The supporters culture in the United States continues to evolve and to con continues to get bigger and bigger and more robust and more passionate and more important going forward. And this supporters culture isn't just limited to MLS. It's all the different professional leagues. It's men and women 
old, young, uh, and in the middle who define themselves at times through the game and oftentimes define themselves through their association with specific teams. That's good. And we talked in the past about how we have this unique opportunity to create a supporters culture here in the United States that takes the best from around the world and leaves the bad part that exists around the world. There have been problems over the last month with the front office and the supporters uh, groups in D.C., and in Chicago. I talked to the folks in D.C. They were able to uh, come to an agreement and an understanding. Uh, they recognized that while they may believe, may believe that things were done, and I'm not going to get into the weeds with this. This is just to say that there was an understanding and a communication that resulted in whatever differences they may, had, they may have had coming together, because this is the lifeblood of your organization. These are people that are going to create the atmospheres and the environments that are going to make your product look better, that are going to make the experience that people have in your stadium better. And you need to, as I said before, move heaven and earth in order to make sure that you have a positive relationship with these folks. Right now in Chicago, that's that's not the case. And there was a back and forth and there was a real... I, I'm even going to say an animosity going uh, going on right now, and you can get you can go and read about all the all the different problems. Uh, my point is that sometimes even when you're right, you are wrong in terms of public public perception. And if you're a front office, it behooves you to go out of your way and to leave no stone un unturned to try to develop and maintain a good positive relationship. And I know supporters oftentimes feel entitled, uh, and that's just part of what they do. Ultimately, it comes from a good place because there's ownership. And this also, you know, this little rant here does not apply to people out there that are doing bad things. If you are being violent, if you are creating an environment out there that is dangerous for people around you in the stadium uh, or people uh, outside of the stadium, uh, we don't need you. And this doesn't apply to you. But you do have to, if you're in the part of this supporters culture that continues to get bigger and more important, you got to police yourself. And you got to recognize the privilege and the responsibility that you have out there. And so I hope that this, that this rift that exists now in Chicago, and it happens elsewhere, and it's going to continue to happen because that's the nature of anything that grows. I hope that it gets ironed out. I hope that they can come to some sort of understanding and accord and respect so that the supporters who ultimately are so good, even with recognition that there are bad apples in there and they need to be weeded out, uh, and at times you're not always going to agree, they are so important going forward because this is something that's really unique to sports and unique to soccer and unique to American soccer out there in terms of the way that these supporters groups are forming. And I believe that this is going to help the game. This is going to help spread the gospel of the game out there because these are your current customers. They are, they are creating uh, and helping to create your future customers. And if you go in and you napalm <laughs> the relationship or you go in without an open mind or you go in without an ability to find ways to compromise so that you don't just give them whatever they want, but you find ways to compromise, then you're doing yourself, your product, and ultimately your team and the game a dis disservice. And that's easy to, for me to say from the outside, but I have been on the inside. And I've ha I have dealt with these problems that come up either with individuals or groups within su the supporters' culture. And you got to find ways to sit down and figure it out. And it doesn't mean that you just look the other way. And it doesn't mean that you tolerate people that are not there for the right reasons. And it's certainly 
certainly doesn't mean that you tolerate in any way any type of violent action from any individual or any group because that is not anything that you want. That is not something that needs to be appeased and that is something that needs to be dealt with quickly and harshly going forward. All right, I know that was a big rant there at the end, but I wanted to uh, get it out because I wanted to just kind of uh, explain and expand on some of the comments that I had at halftime uh, over the weekend, whether you saw it, whether you saw it or not. If you are part of the supporters culture out uh, out there, thank you so much for everything that you do day in and day out. You make our sport, you make our leagues, and I believe ultimately you make our country's culture that much uh, that much better going forward. And you deserve a tremendous amount of applause, uh, and you deserve a positive relationship with the teams and with the ownership and with the front offices out there. But it is a quid pro quo, all right? And there is a relationship and a back and forth. And you also have to respect the men and women who are there to make sure that they give a safe and enjoyable environment. And if you're doing something that's counter to that, that's a problem. All right, enough of that. Off of my soapbox. Mr. Mossy, anything to add before we head out? Uh, no, that is it. All right, we will see you again next week. Uh, we have one more week where I'm on the road, as you can hear from the uh, audio quality here. I am still on the road uh, out here on the East Coast. I will be back. Uh, well, I'll be on the road again next week, and then finally I will be back where I can look into those beautiful green eyes of David Mossy in our studio together, and we can get back to giving you this uh, podcast each and every week from our Playa Studios there in Los Angeles. All right, until next week, have a wonderful time watching your soccer, and as always, Size the day. <laughs>